So today we get to Daniel 5, Belshazzar's Feast. I gave it two headlines in the newsletter yesterday. One was uh, Belshazzar, his feast and his fate. And of course the other one is the one that we all know, the expression, the writing is on the wall. Yeah, yeah. yeah the writing is on the wall. Let me firstly say that I wrote most of this sermon uh, some weeks ago, before the events of this week occurred in our family. And so the, the recent tragic death of Carl's mum will shade, let's say, what I say today, maybe the way I present it. But it was not, it's not because of what's happened that this sermon was prepared or written in this way. Chapter 4, Daniel saw the great humbling and, reluct- and, and, and uh, resultant i put reluctant, that's spell checking here, no, resultant. The outcome of God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was that he was repentant. In fact, we believe, many commentators believe, he came to faith. He was converted at that point in time. The Lord, in severe mercy, brought him down in his pride until he confessed the Lord to be the Lord God. Now the narrative jumps from chapter 5, 4 to chapter 5 to Belshazzar. Let me just give you a I know you might not, you might be bored to death by this, but the first king of the new Babylonian empire was Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar. And he was succeeded by his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who was then succeeded by his son, Evil Merodach. That's a great name, isn't it? He was killed by Nereglissar, all right, usurper. And he was then followed by his son, Laborosoakod. You should stand here and try this. He was assassinated by then the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Nabonidus, another son, a younger son of Nebuchadnezzar, killed that intruder, and Nabonidus, who was a direct son of Nebuchadnezzar, then retook the throne for that family. And then what happens is we're talking about Belshazzar. Now, Nabonidus had not died here. The whole chapter of chapter 5 of, of, of uh, uh, Daniel is that the Medo-Persians, the next empire that was coming, you remember that Daniel 2 is about the empires that were coming, the four great empires that were coming? The Medes and the Persians are now overtaking the kingdom, the, the, the empire of the Babylonians. And Nabonidus, who was a warrior king, well, he'd killed the usurper, hadn't he? I mean, he was a fighting man, had gone out with the army to deal with the Medes and Persians and left Belshazzar, his son, in charge of Babylon, the city. All right? So Belshazzar's called the king of Babylon, but he wasn't the emperor. The emperor's out there fighting the battle, Nabonidus. Okay? And uh, in the notes, you've got some more about this thing. Remember chapters 2 and chapter 7, which we'll come to in, well, it's December by then. Tell how all worldly kingdoms will come to an end and be replaced by the kingdom of God. Chapters 3 and 6 tell us how believing Jewish men withstood the arrogance of earthly kings and were rescued by the God of Israel. Chapters 4 and 5 form the center of this, carry an important message. It contrasts the story of Nebuchadnezzar with that of his grandson. I know it says in chapter 5, his son, but that's the way they spoke. Someone is the son of, just the, it can mean the descendant of, not the direct heir of, the descendant of. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by God. Belshazzar defies God and blasphemes against God. And so Daniel chapter 5 marks the end of the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Okay, let's, let's go in and read it. I've explained that enough. 
Daniel 5. Now, I don't put all the scriptures on the board because then I click, click, click too much and it slows us down. I'm going to read it to you. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, in other words, while all of this drinking, and this was probably going to be some serious drinking, folks. So when he's just started drinking this wine, he gave a command to bring the gold and the silver vessels which his father had taken from the temple, the house of God, as it was, their physical place, which had been in Jerusalem, so that the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines, his concubines are wives but not wives, you know, they're just part of the harem, might drink from those, from those vessels. They brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God that had been in Jerusalem. And the kings and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine. I mean, it's it's emphasizing here. They were putting it away and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. While this feast was happening, Babylon was being besieged by the Medes and Persians. Inside the city, Belshazzar gives a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. And the banquet was given to show Belshazzar's contempt for the Persians and to tell his people, it's all right. Archaeologists found a hall in Babylon from those times. 55 feet wide, 160 feet long, with plastered walls, clean, not bare stone, clean plastered walls. And that was almost certainly the room in which this banquet took place. The walls of Babylon were very thick. It was very fortified. Within the city, there were, so historians tell us, supplies that would have lasted the population for up to 20 years. What was, what was Belshazzar saying? I'm all right here. The old man will sort it out. We'll just have a feast and get on with life. Belshazzar was proud and arrogant. The feast is a show of defiance. In Belshazzar's mind, this is not a last drink on the deck of the Titanic as it goes down. This is a boastful statement that Babylon will never be taken, but its armies will prevail. He's going to drink all night while his old man sorts it all out. And he adds to his contempt for the Persians and their gods by sending for the vessels from the Jerusalem temple. They've been in Babylon for 70 years now, near enough. And he seems to be saying, we defeated the Jews and their God Yahweh and we'll get through this and triumph again. So the whole company at the feast drank their wine, a lot of wine, and praised the gods of Babylon. Then this happens. Daniel 5, verse 5. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand, on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now listen to this for a description of absolute fear. Then the king's countenance, his face, was changed. His thoughts troubled him. The joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked against each other. That's after the fear or flight response. When you kind of, you know. After that, you begin to fall apart. This is major fear. 
The king cried out to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king said to them, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck. And he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Third, because it's Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and then this guy, whoever he is. Now all the king's wise men met, came, but they couldn't read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. We thought he was in enough trouble already, fear and just falling apart. But it says his face was changed even more. You know, it just, all the life and color and everything just came out of it. He's just aghast. And his lords were astonished. This is one of those unique events. Please do not pray for writing to appear on the wall. It's one of those things God does as a one-off, all right? The Lord caused a hand to appear and write on a wall which was illuminated by a lampstand. The hand then disappears, but the writing remains. And Belshazzar's very, very afraid. Supernatural writing stuck there on the wall in this posh dining room, but he can't read it and understand it. He knows that this is from heaven, this is divine. He offers a huge reward to whoever can decipher the writing for him. But the wise men can't help. The news of this event and the king's reaction to it spreads beyond the great hall through the rest of the palace. So in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall. Notice this, there's a queen who wasn't in there with the wives and the concubines. She came. So let's figure out in a minute who she might be. The queen spoke, saying, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you or let your countenance change. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, meaning grandfather, in fact, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, the queen's pushing kiss, isn't she? made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers, inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas, were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation. The queen remembers Daniel. This queen is not the wife of Belshazzar, and probably not even his mother, more probably his grandmother, the widow of Nebuchadnezzar. She hadn't been taking part in the feast. She came in when the news reached her, and she'd lived through the events concerning Daniel during the reign of her husband, Nebuchadnezzar. Let me remind you again. Daniel is now, excuse me anybody who's of this age, an old man, probably in his 80s. And Belshazzar doesn't really, haven't heard of him, it seems. So Daniel's no longer engaged in the day-to-day -day work of the palace. He's kind of retired or excluded. Verse 13, Daniel was brought in before the king. And the king spoke and said to Daniel, now listen, are you that Daniel who's one of the captives from Judah whom my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard of you, that the spirit of God is in you and that the light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you now. The wise men, the astrologer, had been brought in before me, but they, they should read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they couldn't give the interpretation of the thing. 
And I've heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and you shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So Belshazzar makes the same desperate offer. You know, you can be number three king in the kingdom. Daniel answered and said before the king. It's hard to imagine how Daniel said this, but he obviously has no respect for this man at all. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whoever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up, and his spirit was hardened in pride. He was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whom he chooses. Daniel recalls how his master Nebuchadnezzar had been humbled by the severe mercy of God. Then he goes on, speaking to Belshazzar. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, implying he should have known it, maybe he'd heard it and forgotten it. And you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, they brought the vessels of his house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him and this writing was written. Belshazzar is being humbled too, but without repentance and restoration that the Lord gave to Nebuchadnezzar. The same Yahweh who dealt in severe mercy with Nebuchadnezzar is now dealing in judgment with his grandson Belshazzar. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, apasa. And this is the interpretation of each word, mene. God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, which is like Persian, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command and they clothed Daniel with the purple and with the chain of gold and made him proclamation proclaim concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Belshazzar's kingdom was numbered, numbered, weighed and destroyed. 
That was the word of the Lord to him. But it wasn't just the kingdom that was numbered, numbered, weighed, and destroyed. Belshazzar himself was numbered. His days were at an end. His deeds were weighed and found him wanting. And he was about to be destroyed. His time is up. That very night. This night, said Daniel. The last two verses say, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. That very night. And Darius the Mede receives the kingdom, being about 62 years old. I've said that the city of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar rebuilt once he'd finished his battles and wars, had rivers and canals running through it, fed by a mighty river that came through and other waterways as well. The water entered the city through gates in the massive walls. Obviously, they had gates they could close to the roads. They could always close the gate to the river. And uh, some historians tell us that the Medes and Persians stopped the river and diverted it so that the water level in the city gradually went down. And that night when Belshazzar was having his feast, the Medes and Persian army came in under the gate. The gate was still closed, but the, the level had gone down, so maybe with a bit of wading or with a burrow, bit of burrowing, they came under the gate, into the city, invaded the city, went straight for the hall, and killed Belshazzar and the senior parts of the society and just took over the city. You only have to kill the, the leaders, don't you? That's exactly what they did. The same night that Belshazzar had seen the supernatural writing, the same night that Daniel brought the prophetic announcement of it, he died. His father, Nabonidus, was captured by the Medes and Persians and was allowed to live. Darius the Mede, who's not the emperor, but just as Belshazzar was in Babylon and Nabonidus was the emperor, so Cyrus is the emperor of the Medes and Persians. But Darius the Mede, who's 62 years of age when he gets the job, and he's, it's a kind of retirement thing to him in a way, he's given the kingdom of the city of Babylon. Darius the Mede takes on the city of Babylon. Now, I feel that this mental image came to me last night. I had to write it down before I went to sleep. I haven't got so much one application this morning, one thing to say. There's a few smaller things to say. Now, I picture them as postcards. I'm kind of giving out some postcards now. And you'll see them on the board. Isn't that a lovely old antique postcard? Look at that. You might see your language up there if you're from somewhere other than the UK. So there's a few postcards, and they're not for everybody, but at least one, I think, I believe, will be from heaven for you. All right? You ready to catch your postcard? Take it seriously? All right. First one is this. In his 80s, Daniel is still serving the Lord. Belshazzar, who was a young man, if you work out the dates, he was probably not even 30. You know, his dad's out fighting the battles, and Belshazzar's not even 30 or so. And he dies that night. He's still a young man. But Daniel, who's in his 80s, is still serving the Lord. He's not serving the palace because they've, they've, they've shunted him out, but he's still serving the Lord. It seems that Daniel had been excluded. We don't retire from serving Christ. Even in old age, we still have a calling. We still have something to pursue. Locked in a prison and facing death, Paul is still pursuing knowing Jesus. Still pursuing it, knowing him. 
What we cannot do, when we cannot do much else, we can still pray. We'll see it in the next chapter that Daniel in his 80s was praying three times every day. Known for it, observed to be doing it. Further on in the book, when Daniel sees the prophecy of Jeremiah that the Babylonian captivity of the Jewish people is going to last 70 years, what does he do? He says, hallelujah, done. No, he prays. Make it happen, Lord. Bring it about. Daniel was a praying man. He'd learned that very early on. In later years, when we're less busy, when we're not being paid to, 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 to work and so on, we can pray. And having prayed, whoever the Lord stirs us to pray for, we can give them a call and inquire about them and bless them. We may have finished working for a living, but we have never, this side of God's call, finished growing and maturing and pursuing knowing Christ. Second postcard is this one. Belshazzar's last night is the foreshadow of the last day for all mankind. He had his day of judgment, so to speak, and there will be a day of judgment, a final day for all flesh, as the Bible calls it, all humanity. And those three statements, numbered, numbered, weighed, destroyed, will be applied in a sense on that last day. Our days will then, everyone's days then, will have run out. Our deeds will be weighed in the balances and found wanting. Our being religious, our being uh, a goody-goody or whatever else, will not be enough. We will be found wanting. You don't have to be an outrageous sinner to be lost. And the sentence will come. Most people, for most of the time, do not think much about life coming to an end. But all human life does. And one day, all life will come to an end. And only those with eternal life will go into God's eternal kingdom. Every one of us must give account to God. We will be numbered and weighed. And since all have sinned, everyone is found wanting. So how can anyone be saved? How can anyone have eternal life with God? It isn't through ourselves, through our own justifying ourselves, our own works, our own righteousness. It's through the life and works of righteousness of someone else and and another with a big A. It's the Lord Jesus. If you're found in Him, you're saved. If you trust in Him, you have eternal life. Every person who thinks that they can make or earn their way to heaven is deceived. It is not possible. He has to take you there. Jesus must take you by the hand and lead you to eternal life. The work, therefore, we must do. What is, the, what, it is, what is it to work the work of God? Ask somebody of Jesus. He says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's what you need to do. Well, I need to do this and I need to do that. No, no, no. You need to do this. You need to trust Jesus. You need to believe in Him. It's the one thing that makes the eternal difference. The one thing. So, you know, we might, oh, Belshazzar got his come out. No, no, no. That's the situation every single human being will find themselves in outside of having trusted Jesus. Numbered, numbered, weighed, destroyed. Or sentence might be better than destroyed.
Here's another postcard. I told you they were fairly short. Pride or humility. Now, we looked at this the other week with Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't last week. It was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Pride or humility. I want to say to you, you have a choice. If you're a Christian, you have a renewed, you're a renewed being, you're born of the Spirit of God, there are things that work in you that weren't in you before you were, became a Christian because God has made you a new creature. You have a choice. You can choose to pursue being proud or you can choose to pursue being humble. Be careful what you choose. Pride is sin and leads to death. Humility leads to life. In a number of scriptures, and we looked at these when we did Daniel 4, those who humble themselves in the hand of God will be lifted up. But those who lift up themselves in pride will be brought down. And shakably true, a principle of divine law. There are no exceptions to this principle. And this generation openly expresses themselves being proud about this and proud about that and proud about that in, in ways that, you know, I've, I didn't, never saw before in my own lifetime. It's like, you know, people are proud of being proud. My goodness, I'm proud. You know? Let me tell you something. You cannot be proud without storing up trouble. He who exalts, who lifts himself up, will be brought down. That's the lesson of Daniel 4. It's the lesson of, of, of James 4. God will weigh, number, weigh and sentence the world in its pride. And I don't want to be in that camp. We Christians get to see and understand. And we get to choose between pursuing pride or pursuing humility. And it's how we think and speak and behave in relation to God. We humble ourselves in the mighty hand of God. We submit ourselves to God. I'm trying not to quote all of James 4 to you because of time. But that's a choice we make. To be proud. To be proud. Why does Facebook exist so people can be proud? Here I am. Put the selfie up. What is it? It's a vehicle for human pride. It's to the ridiculous thing that people tell you that they're just going out to buy the fish and chips. Why are you telling the world you're buying the fish and chips? That's how crazy it is. That's how crazy pride makes you. You know? What was, it, what was it one Scottish poet, uh, the one they, Burns night, Burns, you know, he, he quotes, if only God would give us the gift of seeing ourselves as others see us. I'm not sure you want that really. But, but that's what people are doing when they're self-publicizing all the time. You know, and some of us look at it and go, did you really want to show us that? Did you really want to tell us that? I mean, that's why I do all very, 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 very little social media. Because I find it so tiresome. And I'm offended by a lot of it. Seriously, I, I'm, I'm offended by a lot of it. So it's like, don't want to go there. Don't want to go there. It's foolishness. And a lot of it's just blatant pride. We cannot choose pride without making trouble ahead. It's a divine principle. 
God will exalt those who humble themselves before him. And he will put down those who exalt them. God will, yes, and those who exalt themselves, push themselves up, he will bring down. Pride or humility. There's another one. It's just called today. Today. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had a day in which he found faith. Belshazzar had a day when it was too late. And he died. The Bible never tells us, now, why don't you just put a date in your diary sometime ahead when you might think about becoming a Christian? It never, never, ever says that. It says again and again, today is the day. Now, Talking about this, to be honest with you, I've been preparing the sermon, the sermon for India when I go, and I tried it out on Epping last week. Just don't tell him. <laughs> this has been recorded, David. You just went and blew it. Um, when we say, "Oh, when I get there, when I'm older, I'll do this," right? Here's the thing: God, the Lord Jesus, doesn't change. We do. We change. And when we get to wherever it is, we've changed. We're older, we're less, we're less, we're less energetic, you know, the faculties begin to fade a bit or whatever else. Or it's another thing. We've chosen not to believe. We've chosen not to obey because we think, we'll do that when I'm older. Do you know what you've done? You've chosen to harden your heart. When you get there, you're even harder. We change. You will not be the same person when that date arrives. The further off it is, the more, the more you will be not what you thought you would be. We're commanded to repent and to change our mind and therefore our way of life and believe and obey today. Every scripture says today, never tomorrow. We can't trade today for sometime, sometime, whenever. Manana. You know that, that, that attitude? It's in a few cultures now, manana, whenever. Meaning, I can't be bothered. That's what it means. Now, I'll make a firm plan to do it. It's like, I can't be bothered to do it. Today and tomorrow are two very different things. The time of grace, the time for faith and obedience is today. Take hold of the truth. Take hold of the grace of God through Jesus Today. You can't swap it. What you put off till tomorrow, you will perhaps never do. Life is short. Today we must believe and obey the gospel. Tomorrow's not in our hands. Now I'm going to go to the story, Luke 2. You wonder where I'm going to finish early. Not quite. But Jesus told a story in Luke 12 about a wealthy farmer who was just planning for his time, retirement. I mean, that's what we do, isn't it? We, we save up and pension and so on. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But he planted, he planned building bigger barns for his crops and he looked forward to years of peace and prosperity. Let me just read these to you. Luke 12. The land of a rich man was very productive. I've got a different version in my notes than this one, so let me just read this. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones and I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, now listen to this, he's talking to himself, 
Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. I just want to stop there a moment. If God calls someone a fool, what are they? God's not being, you know, naughty. He's just being truthful. This very night, your soul is required of you. Ah, shades of Belshazzar. There's a connection. There's a parallel. This very night, your soul is required of you. And now, who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasure for himself, and he's not rich towards God. Here are the mistakes that man made, and this is something, I preached this years and years and years ago, these four points. This man, the rich fool, mistook himself for God as provider. God had provided him with those crops and with that income, but he thought he'd done it. Number two, he mistook wealth for true riches. We're going to talk about true riches in a minute. I've got all this stuff, yes, but you, you haven't got what really matters. Jesus calls it being rich towards God. We'll come back to that. He mistook wealth, things that had monetary value, for true riches. He mistook his body for his soul. Oh, soul, we'll just make a good, comfortable life here. That was bodily comfort. That wasn't his soul. Your soul needs God. Your body says, oh, give me some rest and some food and a bit to drink and let me have a sleep. But your soul, your inner man, needs to be connected to God, the eternal spirit. So he mistook his body for his soul. People do that all the time. They talk about things that are satisfying, them, satisfying their souls or satisfying their hearts. No, you're just satisfying a physical desire. You're just as hungry inside afterwards as you were before. Because all human pleasure, the bodily pleasure, whether it's food, drink, sex, whatever, is temporary. It's passing. The things that really satisfy us are not physical sensations. They're things that come strike at our inner being. Call it the soul of the spirit. We've talked about that a few weeks ago. He mistook his body for his soul. And lastly, he he mistook time for eternity. He thought he could have today and another day and another day and another day. Nothing was going to change. And it does. Tomorrow will be different. And the further away tomorrow is, the more it will be different. Things change. God doesn't change. We change. God doesn't change. Most of our predictions... Let me test you a second. Think about something where you thought ahead and thought, now, this and this and this and this is going to happen. How many times have you been right? Most of our predictions, our forecasting, is wrong. Do you know why? Because we are not wise. We're not God, exactly. We don't know tomorrow. We really don't know tomorrow. We guess. Sometimes we have revelation, we have insight, and God shows me something's going to happen, or a conversation's going to take place, and yeah, that's wonderful. But most of the time, I don't know what's, going, what, what's up tomorrow. We don't hold it or control it. We may not even have that tomorrow. That man banked, this rich man banked on having a tomorrow, but he didn't have that tomorrow because God took it away. He wasted today and probably also lost eternity. 
And Jesus closes that whole story with this phrase, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And that's that last phrase I want to pick up on, the last postcard. Are we rich towards God? Now, some people can't see the words rich, riches and treasure in the scriptures without imagining dollar and pound signs. You know, oh, there's another one. Hey, rich, hey. And some people seem to think, because some people teach, that the the gospel is about how we can obtain financial riches and prosperity from God. I want to show you something. I'm not not going to take a long time showing you, but just say it to you. In the Bible, the riches that the world understands that have monetary value are compared and contrasted with the riches that God gives us. There's a comparison and a contrast. It's not, it's the same stuff. It's no, it's like that, different, better. Yeah? That's exactly what the Lord Jesus says here. This man was a rich man. He had loads of stuff. But he was not rich towards God. The fool thought he was rich, but he wasn't rich towards God. God, it says in Ephesians 5.24, is rich in mercy towards us through Jesus. In fact, if you go into Romans, Paul writes about uh, these phrases. I'm just, just phrases. The riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. The riches of his glory. The riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In Ephesians, he, he writes, the riches of his grace. The exceeding riches of his grace. And then the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is extravagant language. To say that what we have received and have from God in Jesus is true wealth beyond any monetary value. And if anyone preaches those scriptures and makes them to do with pounds and dollars, you have abused scripture, boy. That is not what scripture is saying. You're reversing the words to make them say what you want them to say. It's the riches of his grace, not grace that gives us riches. It gives us wealth. But it's the wealth, the immense value, the incredible price of his riches. How valuable is this to us? The Lord Jesus asks us to consider whether we are rich towards God. Hang on, you're talking about the riches of God, his grace, his mercy, his Christ himself. And yet, on the other hand, we're rich toward God. Well, the question is this, whether the grace that God has shown us has provoked a response back to him from us. We're receiving his goodness, we're receiving his mercy, we're receiving his fabulous uh, wisdom and knowledge and and, and just to know Jesus and and that produces a response in that we are open-hearted and open-faced before God. We're rich towards God. And this is not a question about tithes and offerings. That will play a small part a real part, but a small part, in a whole Christian life that is God-centered, God-seeking, and God-honoring. God appeared to Abraham and said to him, amongst other things, I am your reward. Some Bibles have your reward is very great, but actually it's literally, I am your great reward. Is God my treasure and my reward? Or am I looking for something else? Both Belshazzar and the fool in the parable lost their riches and treasures in a day. 
But if I am rich towards God, and if I, my soul, my, my, my inner man is being fed and soaked with the riches of God, His grace, His goodness, His peace, His joy, then I have stuff I can't lose. Yeah? I can't lose that. Unless I fritter away my time and energy. Am I rich toward God, or do I treasure things more than knowing Him, loving Him, and serving Him? Rich towards God is the response of a heart that is being fed and nourished. And if you like the biblical illustration, we don't like to get fat nowadays, but the Bible has an illustration of you being made fat by the goodness of God. Robust, healthy, full of the goodness of God, the grace of God. My friend, if your heart is empty, there is no sense of God's grace and goodness towards you through Jesus. No wonder you don't have anything to say, to pray, to sing. You can't be rich towards God because you are not tasting His goodness, the riches of His grace. When you're full of His goodness, His kindness, His mercy in Christ, then your heart is full to pour out. Now I wonder which postcard lands in your lap or in your hand, if I may use that expression. Maybe, maybe one or two. Do you know what we want to do for the next five minutes or four minutes or five minutes? I want us to take the time to say, Lord, I need to talk to you about this. This is where I am. Now, he knows you. Right? There's, no, there's no fooling him. But he needs, he wants us to speak to him honestly about this is where I am. And this is what I know and this is what I, I need. And to speak to him about how you want to take seriously what he said to you. For him to work in your heart and through your heart in the whole of your life so that you become someone who pursues whatever it is humility rather than pride. You learn to be rich towards God. You open your heart to be filled again and again by His goodness and His mercy. You believe the gospel again and again. You, keep, you, you don't mind how often the preacher preaches the gospel because it feeds your heart with more of God's grace. Maybe for somebody, there's one word, there's one word on your postcard. It's today. Today, you need to turn to God. The day you need to turn away from a path that's leading to destruction to one that leads to life. Today you need to throw, throw yourself on the grace of God through Jesus. Let's bow our heads and pray together.
Lord, we've often sung very robustly, joyously. Lord, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. But I pray that every one person here today may not only uh, find that an exciting song to sing at some time or other, but a truth that feeds their heart the same way that a good meal feels, feeds the body. Your goodness gives us reason to live and strength to live. Your goodness builds us up. Your goodness causes us to be strong in weakness, to find help in trouble. It's your goodness, Lord, your grace, your mercy, expressed to us through your eternal act of mercy in giving Christ to die in our place and make reconciliation and peace with us. Fill our hearts again with the love of God, Holy Spirit. Convince our hearts again of the truth that God is for us because he gave his son for us. Help us, Lord, to fight away the, the mess and the confusion that is thrown at us every day by a world that doesn't know God. We lay hold again of the simple truths of the gospel and apply them to our hearts the way that someone applies medicine to themselves so that we may not lose sight of our eternal calling, our eternal value. We are your inheritance, Lord Jesus. Help us not to mistake time for eternity things that are happening now and that need to be dealt with now for things that really, truly matter in the very long term. For we will not live forever until we see your face and you give us that eternal life in your eternal kingdom. I pray, Holy Spirit, that whatever it is that you most need to say to each one of us will not depart from our thinking. But there will be an image of words, just as Belshazzar saw words on a wall, so they will be written in the imagination of our hearts, like on the cinema of our minds, the thing that you have said to us today. And we will not let it go from us until we have worked it out with you. In Jesus' name. Amen.